New Year's resolutions are kind of pointless, right? Because I think Tony Robbins says everyone overestimates what they can do in a year, but they yeah. underestimate what they can do in a decade. Right. And I think like 10 years might seem like a long time. So the three years is like, what would it look like in the next three years if it's the best three years of your life? And then four simple follow-up questions. What are the dangers that are going to get in the way of that vision? external mm. dangers internal dangers like the way you think your personality you know your tendencies what are the dangers list them out be honest what are the biggest opportunities in front of you that could lead to that vision like you probably have some opportunities right in front of you what are your biggest two to three unique strengths that's cool to know and then what are the dark sides of those strengths mm. one of the strengths you pointed out earlier Wes, was that i have a strength of discipline yeah i was just coaching my mastermind students today I was telling guys, one of my biggest strengths is discipline. You know what the dark side of discipline is? I'm not very curious. I don't experiment. I don't break things apart and wonder if they could be better. I just, I just don't change things. Hmm. And so there's a, there's a dark side. There's a pro and there's a con. And so if you just walk through those five questions, the three-year vision and then the four follow-up questions, if you just one piece of paper, mm-hmm. maybe 30 to 60 minutes, that you could look at that, all of a sudden, hmm. you could have so much clarity that's great to know like man my job does not line up with this the way i'm treating my wife does not line up with this Mm. what i'm doing on the weekends is not going to get me there (laughs) like that's so helpful and then you'll figure out what to do next everyone's path is different you can't really prescribe that but i think that self-awareness that little exercise that's for me i do stuff like that that's been the most helpful thing for me and i drift away from it and then i try to come back to it at least once Mm. a year Mm. and do that kind of exercise so good Hey everyone, this is Cal, and I just want to thank you for joining us here today. At Intentional Leader, we help leaders take the guesswork out of self-leadership, accelerate their personal growth, fight a reactionary lifestyle, and achieve their God-given potential at home, at work, and in their communities. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Let's go make it count. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 84 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm Cal, and I'm so thankful that you're here joining us today. Today's a really special episode. We have Graham Cochran as our guest, someone that will most certainly inspire you. And I'll tell you more about Graham in just a second. It's also special because I have a co-host on the show with me today, Wes Cochran. Wes is a member of the team here at Intentional Leader and a close friend of mine since we met back at West Point. Uh, man, it was probably 2006. And let me tell you quickly about Wes before I introduce Graham. First of all, Wes and his wife, Ann, have three kids and one on the way. Wes is very passionate about leadership development. He's a gifted speaker, coach, teacher. He's a graduate of West Point, Ranger School, Airborne School, Air Assault. Uh, he's led teams in both combat and at home. He's also an attorney and a very gifted advocate. I got to see Wes in court many times. Uh, He's a member of the Judge Advocate General's Corps in the Army. I'm honored to have Wes on the team here at Intentional Leader and really excited he could join me as the co-host today as we interview his big brother, Graham Cochran. Now, Graham is an author, business coach, YouTuber, and the host of the Graham Cochran Show podcast, where each week he teaches people how to grow their online businesses, work less, and live and give more to the things and people that they care about. After creating two seven-figure online businesses, that's two seven-figure online businesses, he's out with a brand new book where he shares exactly how he was able to do that. And it's called How to Get Paid for What You Know, Turning Your Knowledge, Passion, and Experiences into an Online Income Stream in Your Spare Time. The book is available for pre-order now and also officially launches on March 22nd, 2022. Now, even if you have no interest in online business or have never even considered it, stick around because this this interview is packed with wisdom about life and leadership for everyone. We dive into how Graham went from living on food stamps to creating his first seven-figure business, The Recording Revolution. We discuss imposter syndrome, something that all of us can relate to. We talk about how to stay committed to a long-term plan and how he remains so consistent over the last decade. He gives us a critique of the hustle culture that's constantly promoting workaholism. We also talk about why after creating these two successful businesses that he's invested a lot of money in a high performance coach and how he has a growth mindset. We also talk about some keys to self-leadership that he shares at the end. And before we jump in, I want to let you know that we've been combing through some of our best interviews over the past several years. We've consolidated them into one free PDF, a 12-page PDF that outlines 12 ideas that can make you a better leader in 2022. We want to give you this. Go to intentionalleader.org and get this free guide. We, it's really a great way to distill some of these hour-plus-long interviews into 12 key ideas 
ideas that we think will make you a better leader. This is something you could take for 12 days and just take one idea, digest it, journal about it. We're going to give you this just again, go to intentionalleader.org where you can find this free guide. This episode today is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to help optimize your performance. Higher Echelon can help prepare your organization to meet the rapidly changing complex and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by helping you develop resilient and adaptive leaders, help you modernize and enhance your systems, and help you implement transformational technology solutions. Just go visit higherechelon.com to connect with the amazing team over at Higher Echelon. Hey, if you enjoy this episode, please share it with a friend, someone in your network. A special thank you to all of you that continue to support Intentional Leader by listening, by rating the show on Apple Podcasts, by sharing it with people in your network. And without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the inspiring Graham Cochran. All right, Graham Cochran, welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast, man. It's so awesome to have you on today. Oh man, it's an honor to be here. I've been looking forward to this one. I've been looking forward to this. And it's so fun to have Wes uh, also helping out with Intentional Leader on here. So this is really fun. I got one of my best friends and someone I really admire and also Graham, some you are someone I really admire from a distance. And congratulations on your new book, How to Get Paid for What You Know, Turning Knowledge, Passion, and Experience into an Online Income Stream in Your Spare Time. Um, really excited to get into that. So you have, I've been following your work over the last several years, even before Wes and I really started getting involved in Intentional Leader. And you have two seven-figure businesses. But the the really interesting thing to me is that is not where it started. You you started, in fact, part of your story that, I, that I've learned in your book is there was a period of time where you were on food stamps. So, so take us back to 2008, 2009, where you were in this period of food stamps and struggle and tell us how you even became an entrepreneur to begin with. Yeah. I mean, that was a period that changed my life forever. So Shay, my wife and I moved from Virginia to Florida with some friends to help plant a church down here in Tampa. And we were pregnant and excited to just adventure and leave a small town, Virginia and do something different. And so we got to Tampa in the spring of 2009. Um, and it was, a, a, I mean, talk about being the last couple of years with the, the pandemic and people losing jobs and shifting and the great resignation and a lot of uncertainty with employment. That's what it felt like back then, right? 2009 was like a crazy time. And so it was hard to get a job. Companies were, they weren't even sure if they could hire people because they weren't sure if they were going to be around. So it was, a, it was a very uncertain time, was able to get a job, get down here, buy a house, our first house, have our first baby. And then subsequently lose that job because that company <laughs> ran out of money. It was a startup and it ran out of money. And so uh, they had to let me go. So we found ourselves down here and we were like, what are, what are we doing? Like It was a really uncertain time. The only skill I had that was marketable that I knew of was I was a freelance audio engineer. So I had a, a background in music production and went to school for that. And I did audio production for bands on the side. Like in Virginia, that was my nights and weekends. Like fun gig. Someone would call it a side hustle. Like it was, it was what I love to do, made extra money, but I never relied on it like for full-time income. And so I kind of had to turn to that. And it was in that season that I started trying to get as much work as I could. I started blogging. I started a YouTube channel. All of this was like for lead generation, thinking I could get some clientele um, online because you could do a lot of remote work. And so we, we were at a point where after the savings ran out, yeah, we had to apply for food stamps. My wife asked me twice. I said no the first time. She had a friend who, whose husband lost a job in construction and they applied for food stamps and they were getting like five, 600 bucks a month, mm -hmm. which back then was a big deal. Food costs weren't quite what they are today even. <laughs> and that would have been very helpful for us. And I said no, because I just, I had a really hard time mentally feeling like that was, it was a very humbling moment because the, the language I would say in our home privately was, that's not for us. Like that's mm. for different kind of people. Like mm. where we both have a college degree, we both have worked hard. Um, I don't need the help was basically what I was saying. But it was a, maybe a judgmental statement. Maybe it was a prideful statement. But I just didn't want to go there. I couldn't accept that. But she she pressed into me about a month later and said, like, I really think we should apply for this. We did. We got food stamps. 
We were qualified for 18 months. Um, it was very helpful, but it was very humbling. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was sort of the soup in which I was starting a business and reorienting my career in life. At what point did you say, I'm going to try this entrepreneurial thing? Was that during that period on food stamps? Yeah. I mean, that's when I was trying to get freelance work, um, it, whatever it took, because that's the fastest way to make money that I knew because mm -hmm. I had done that before. So I was like, let's just try to do more of that. Um, what I didn't know I was doing, and I talk about this in the book, I didn't know I was building a content business. I didn't know I was building an education company. I didn't know I was building um, a knowledge commerce business. That wasn't a thing I knew existed. And if it did exist, I didn't want to do it. I, I, hmm. I didn't view myself as a teacher, <laughs> you know, like that's functionally is what I, is what I am in a lot of ways or a, a content creator. That's not what I was setting out to do, but that's what I began doing inadvertently during that season. Yeah. So you started out blogging and then video? Yeah, I started my blog in October of 2009. Uh, and then January 2010 is when I launched my YouTube channel. And I only created it as a means to fill like a, pl a place to upload some videos so I could embed them on my blog. I didn't mm -hmm. understand at the time just how powerful YouTube is as a search engine. So for me, it was just like free video embedding. But I, there were some things I knew I couldn't teach in written form that would make sense for audio. I needed to, them to hear what I was doing, see what I was doing in the, the software. So I started doing some screen recording stuff. And tell us about when you actually started making your first bit of money doing that. Yeah, like it'll, it did not take long for the content to like grow a little audience. And it okay. wasn't big, but it was, it was clear that like people really liked the content and really wanted more of it. Um, and it was like striking a chord with people. And so I, I found a little mini micro niche early on that loved what I was doing. And so I was just helping them out in between gigs. So I was like, if I don't have a client right now, or if I have a day or two off, I'm unemployed. So I'll make videos um, and help people. But it got to a point where I was like, I, I can't keep doing this for free. So I either need to stop doing it to do, go do work that actually pays the bills or if I could find a way to monetize what I'm doing, um, then I could keep helping them out for free. So that's when I started to try to figure out what do bloggers do? Like there wasn't, I mean, there were people doing it, um, but it was hard to find. So I was like, what, how do bloggers make money? So I realized, okay, a lot of them have banner ads or sponsors like right over the top of their website. So I reached out to companies and brands that would want to advertise to my readers. Um, and I did a few sponsored deals. Like they were like 500 bucks a month, 600 bucks a month to run a big thing on my website. And I was like, I can't believe people are giving me money for nothing, you know? <laughs> um, so that was my first foray into monetization, but I quickly learned like that wasn't going to get me very far. And I decided to try my hand at what became an online course, which was, could I sell videos instead of just giving them all away? Uh, if they were like really like if it was a lot of videos, if it was a long in-depth training, um, and that was an experiment that really changed the course of what I did because the moment I packaged up my, I think it was a it was a course on a piece of software called Pro Tools, which is kind of like the Photoshop in the music world, and I spent like three to four hours explaining how to use the software, make it less overwhelming for people, how to use it as a musician, um, and it. Zipped it all up. It's like a zip file. It literally, is like a PayPal button and a zip folder. And if you bought it off this little website, you would get this little download link. And somebody in April of 2010 bought it, and I got 45 bucks, mm. and they got a digital download. And I was and his, like, his name was Paul. His name was Paul. Man, you write about him. Yep. In your book, <laughs> your first sale. Yep, I have that screen capture from that very first receipt. That that changed my life because that was. It was only 45 bucks and it which was way less than what I would make doing any kind of freelance work but it was it was different it was like bucks. I didn't yeah I the work is done like I can sell infinite copies of this thing now <laughs> if and so that was a light bulb moment for me so even though we weren't making much money and that was 2010 and 2011 were two of the hardest years of my life financially but that was the beginning of like there's something here and I'm willing to go a little bit farther and see if I can turn this into something substantial. And Wes, this was your big bro down in Florida doing yeah. this. What were, what were you thinking? Like, what was your perspective? I, it's, you think it's it was crazy? Uh, I, I think there was no way <laughs> I would have known. Like there was, 
there was complete lack of imagination on my part. I, I didn't know it existed. And, and Graham was the one doing it and didn't even know what he was tapping into. So like I had, I was more removed than that, you know? So we, we were aware of the struggle and we all felt bad. And I knew Graham was working hard, but I want you to talk about a little bit, bro. Um, you had a lot of pressure to go get a J-O-B. Like, and I know you kind of alluded to this. I should just quit this and go get some work. But that was like a, re- I do remember that. That was a real um, powerful pull to just, let me just go find something that's going to give me benefits and put some food, you know, on the table every month so I can kind of get off food stamps. Um, and and so I want to hear a little bit about that, but also what were, were you, was any of this scary for you at the time? Was there, like you write about imposter syndrome in your book, and I hope we talk about that. But was there any of that back then? Or were you just like not even aware that anybody would judge you for what you were doing? If that makes sense. Oh yeah. No, it it was frightening, right? Like it was, and I I wrote about this in the book a little bit at the beginning. And then especially at the end, um, I try to come back to fears because you could read a book like this and and be like, wow, that's great. And then you Mm -hmm. stop and go, oh, but if I actually go do it, yeah. Uh, then like, what if it doesn't work? A lot of fears. And so we, I kind of capstone the book with like, let's talk about those. I have those fears even to this day. So yeah, I mean, it was the most, um, the words I used to describe that period of my life were scary, embarrassing, confusing, futile. Um, I, I would sit in my office, my little home office, my wife was basically just off the living room. So it was like a little French door off the living room. I could hear my wife. I could hear our newborn crying, mm-hmm. like banging on the door <laughs> where I was at. And I'm in there trying to quote unquote work. But what am I supposed to do? I don't have a roadmap. Like but this book, I wrote this book for the version of me 13 yeah. years ago. I didn't have even a, a plan to know how this could work. Um I didn't know what I was doing. So I was scrambling, trying to make something happen out of nothing with not even like a, yeah, a, a map to follow. I I didn't go get a job for the simple fact that I didn't want one. You know, like <laughs> as much as I wanted one, I wanted the security of a paycheck. I, I wanted this, this fear to go away, this uncertainty to go away. God, like he, like he knew what I wanted and didn't want. Like, he's like, you don't want a job. You really don't. You hated it. I had a corporate job. I had a sales job. I worked in retail. Like I hated every moment of it, like, because I knew it wasn't for me. It always felt like I was a square peg and round hole, mm-hmm. but I, at the same time, didn't have any entrepreneurial ambition to be like, I'm going to quit this job and go build a company. I didn't have that either. So I was kind of in a rough place. And I think I needed this moment to lose my job, to be stuck in this position, to force my hand. And so I wasn't like running for a job because I, at the end of the day, didn't want one. Actually, I actually wanted this something else to work out. But it, yeah, it was two years of uncertainty. I mean, I remember the holidays, 2009, 2010. Those were the two Christmases where I had nothing going. And it was hard to come home to talk. I mean, not to you. I mean, you were supportive, bro. But like to, to talk to mom and dad, to talk to Shay's mm-hmm. parents, Shay's grandfather, that guy, he wanted to have a lot of conversations with me. He would talk about how bad the recession was and how are you going to provide for my daughter or my granddaughter? Well, he had spent like 40 years at a single company, right? Got the golden watch and retired on a boat in Florida. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I, so I understand his reservations and I wasn't even like certain either. So I wasn't like, oh, it's going to work. Pop pop, don't you even worry. I, I, was like, I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing either. It doesn't seem very lucrative. It doesn't seem, I don't even know how to monetize this enough. So it was a lot of uncertainty. But yeah, I was on a, a podcast recently. I was talking with a guy named Chris Doe. He has this cool podcast called The Future. And he asked me, he was like, What, why did you not quit? Like, what yeah. was it? Like, yeah. you talk about it like you didn't see the vision and yet you didn't give up. And he was really confused about it. And when I think about it, all I can say is it was the Holy Spirit leading me. I felt called to do something. It was very scary. Like Abraham, right in the Bible, like God says, go to the place I'll show you, which is really mm-hmm. awful instructions. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? So do you want me to wait? Or, but it was like, no, I want you to go now, but I'll show you where you're going later. That doesn't make mm-hmm. sense. But he had the faith to go there. And I felt like that's what God was calling me into. And when I talk about it with people that don't have a spiritual background, it's hard for them to understand. It's hard for me to understand. But I saw that there was something valuable here. I wanted to tease it out. 
Um, I was willing to make our income work through a, a patchwork of side gig here, a little bit of that here. Like I didn't care. Um, our expenses were low, but I just I felt like there was something there worth fighting for, and it was yeah, it was a nightmare in the middle of it. But um, I I don't know. I felt like I needed to keep going. Well, and let's put that in perspective a little bit. Like the not quitting thing. Um, to kind of add some flesh to that, you you were you were producing three pieces of content online every single week. Am I wrong about that? Yeah, and for the first four years, three pieces a two, week every week. Two blogs in one video, or was it? Right. Yep. Okay. So you're nodding your head. That's a lot of work for 48 months, week after week after week. Um, and especially those first two years, I remember you weren't making any money necessarily. And so you have the not quitting aspect, but like there's a lot of discipline to show up. You don't have a boss. Nobody's telling you what to do. Talk to us about some of that discipline and, and how that idea of discipline is, is even... That's kind of a staple in your life, but not in an oppressive way, you know, but, but how has that looked like for you? I think when you are in a position where there's so much out of your control, you try to control the things that you can control, right? I, there was so much out of my control back then. I couldn't control making sales. I couldn't control my audience growth. I couldn't control anything, but the things I could control was how much content I put out. And I knew in like instinctively, like if I don't put out content, no one's going to find me. If I put out content, there's more stuff that could show up in a Google search. So why don't I put out more content? You know, like that was about as strategic as it was, but that's all I could control. So it was almost out of nervousness and fear and a lack of control that I just did the things I could control. So I, I felt like I had to be productive. I wanted to do something between nine and five. So when I wasn't working on a client gig, I would just go into my office and I would create and I would post and I would tweet about it. I hated Twitter back then, but I got on because at the time that was where everyone's having conversations. So I was like, I'll share it. I'll connect with people. I got in forums and had conversations. I tried to be helpful. Like I just had to do something productive. Um, and it just so turns out that those are the tasks that actually drive an online content business, which is hmm. producing searchable content that can be discovered in a Google search. And then being helpful online in certain groups that are affinity groups based around the, the area you want to help out with. So there weren't Facebook groups at the time, but there was forums around this topic of music production. And that's where I hung out. And I just tried to help be the most helpful guy in the virtual room. And people would then click on my signature and see that I have a website, check out my blog. And it was a lot of that. And that turned out to be really a good recipe for getting noticed online. But it was mostly because I was the only thing I could control. Was there was there a long period where you weren't seeing the payoff and then it just kind of went exponential or what did that look like over time because eventually you you became you had a seven figure business in the recording revolution but what what did that look like over time did it just kind of take off at a certain point Yeah it was it's like a hockey stick for sure and I've seen it in both of my businesses and I've seen it in a lot of my students who I coach now in their businesses so year 1 it was a uh, year 1 I made $10,000 working full time, full time. Um, year two, I made at the end of year two, I made around 65, $70,000, but most of that came in the back half of year two. So imagine an 18 month stretch where you're not making much, like maybe I made 15,000 to 20,000 over a year and a half, mm -hmm. but I could see it was the second half of year two that things started to pick up. And it was a combination of Content eventually picks up if it's searchable content. So the 80-20 rule applies to everything in life as far as I can tell. It certainly is applied to content. So I could make videos every week for a year and a half, and most of them are going to be about the same. Whatever my average views are, they're going to be about the same. And then there's going to be one or two that really pick up for whatever reason. It's the right topic. It's the right title. It's the right thumbnail. The algorithm showered me with favor. Whatever it was, a one or two pop. And then you get more people discovering you through that one or two pieces of content. And then they go check out your other stuff. That started to happen the second half of year two for me. It was that combination. Plus, I was trying a bunch of different products. I released two courses in year one and three courses in year two. And it was course number four and five that were actually good. Like the first three were okay and made some money. Course four and five were better because I was better at making courses, but they were also on the topics that my audience was actually asking me for and I was afraid to do. 
So business 101, give your people what they're asking you for. You'll probably sell a lot of it, but I, I, I was afraid to do it. So it took me a year and a half to finally have the guts to create some content on the subject they were asking me for. Those two courses were both on that subject. And they both sold and I had a lot more of an audience coming in. Mm. And that was, it was like a momentum. It really picks up. So your workload stays about the same. At the end of year two, I made $65,000, $70,000. But by beginning of year three, like two months later, I was doing 10,000 a month. Wow. So, so you could see how that, and nothing changed. It was just picking up momentum. And that's when, that's when I knew like, hey, I'm set. Like I'm a happy camper, but also then it was like, where else can this go? What else can mm. I figure out? Cause I'm not even that smart yet. I haven't even figured this thing out yet. And it's already doing six figures. So what else can we, can we unpack? Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Graham. I love his new book, How to Get Paid for What You Know. I got an opportunity to read it before this interview and it's so good. And I think it's got so much value in it that we want to give away a couple copies of this book to you. So if you want to enter into a very simple drawing to get this book, we'll just mail you a copy, nothing fancy or complicated here. We just want to mail you a free copy of this book. All you got to do is in the show notes of this episode. So if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, just go to the show notes, look at the link of the link that says enter to win a copy of Graham's book. Click on that link and all we got to do is get your email and your contact information will enter you into a drawing to get a book. And if you win, we'll mail you a free copy. We'll reach out to get your mailing information and email you a free copy of his book. I hope you enjoy the rest of this conversation. Let's go make it count. Let's talk a little bit about imposter syndrome because you talk about it in the book, but I think a lot of people can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you say to people who are struggling with imposter syndrome? Because it seems like it's not just something that it's it's in the beginning. Because starting is hard. Starting, mm-hmm. setting the video up, creating the video, uploading it to YouTube—that's scary. Starting this podcast was scary, and but it continues. It's not something that that just is in that initial moment of starting. So talk to us a little about what would you say to people who are feeling that, or just kind of lack confidence. I don't have anything to offer, or I. I I mean, who would listen to me if I wanted to? I don't have the credentials. I need yeah. to like have a PhD in this to talk about it online. Yes, this is where most people get stuck. And I tell people it's never really gone away for me in a lot of ways. So the behavioral, the behavior, the journal of behavioral science did a study <clears throat> on imposter syndrome, and they found that 70% of working people, working adults, including professionals like doctors, lawyers, uh, marketing executives, 70% of working adults feel like an imposter at their job, which mm-hmm. is interesting. Yeah, I, My guess is that the other 30% are lying, but se- <laughs> 70% yeah. feel like an imposter. And these are like what we would look at and be like, wow, they're, they're successful. Yeah. They went and got a degree in that field. They're getting paid well. Um, and that tells us something about human nature that we all, I, th- I think, right, we put on a front to just cope with life, our own fears, our own securities, what we think people want us to be. Um, there's a variety of reasons why, and everyone's background is different, but we all have like, you know, Brendan Manning talks about it in his, his book. Um, I think it's called Abba's child, but he has a whole chapter called the imposter. And he's very transparent about like how as a child, he created this version of himself almost to cope through life and how he needed to like, let that version of himself go. Cause it served his purpose, but not really helping him. And I think we all, to some degree, without getting into a counseling session, have an imposter that we're right operating now, under. And uh, this is this is really about me, guys. Right I'm having a moment here. <laughs> but we all we all feel like an imposter, and then especially when it comes to doing something that we're like, ah, oh, that's what other people do. So mm-hmm. when it comes to starting a business or a podcast or content, like I don't know, that's that's that seems hard for me. And to your point, Wes, like the the reasons why we feel like an imposter are, you know, the question is, who am I to do this? You know, I mm. who am, and that that could be because you think you need a degree or you think you need a certain personality. I have people tell me I can't make YouTube videos. I'm not. I don't have a big, colorful personality. So we all have these assumptions, and the reality is, like, who are we to do any of this? Like, I. Mm. I felt like when I started the fir- my first business, The Recording Revolution, who am I to make videos teaching people how to record music? Just because I know how doesn't mean I sh- I'm some authority. I-, I don't have a Grammy award. None of my clients or bands you've ever heard of, they're all indie artists. And so I felt like, why would anyone want to learn from me? It turns out a lot of people want to learn from me. And the reason is because they don't care about whether you 
you're an expert mm-hmm. or you have credentials. They really just care about themselves. Can I help them? Can mm-hmm. I get them results? Can I improve their life in some way? And it's an interesting era we live in where we don't really care about expertise like maybe previous generations did, or maybe previous generations didn't care as much as we thought they did. They just wanted the help and they're mm-hmm. willing to get the help from anybody. So what I, I try to help people think about is stop looking at yourself and stop being so narcissistic that you're mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm, am I good enough to do this? That's such a selfish question when you should look outward mm. and could I help somebody? Could I help somebody get a little bit further along their journey? Now, you, you can't help somebody go somewhere you've never been necessarily, but right. you can help pe- pull people along where you've been. I write about this in the book that it, it's really unhelpful to look up the ladder at people who are doing what you're doing, but they're steps ahead because it'll make you feel like super tiny. You, instead, you should look behind you and, and pull the people who are a little bit further behind you along the way, Right pull them along with you, bring them in one step closer. And you'll find that people in business online, they just want help and they don't need you to be something else that you aren't. And so that, that imposter syndrome is real. So just know that you're normal if you feel it. I don't know if it fully goes away. I struggled with this when I pivoted into teaching online business. Mm -hmm. I thought, well, now I'm jumping into a much bigger pond. Now I'm competing, competing. I don't even like that word. I don't believe in competition. I believe in collaboration, but I'm in the same sphere as the Tony Robbins of the world, you know, the Michael Hyatt's of the world. Like this is this is a very different ballgame now. Who am I to teach business? Like, why should people listen to me? And that crept up again. I wanted to start this personal brand in 2015. I didn't start it till 2018. I punted for mm-hmm. three years. I dragged my feet because I was afraid. It's the same thing. And and still to this day, sometimes I'm afraid to hit publish because what will people say? What if they disagree with me? What if they find out that I'm just a guy? You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't know what I think people think I am, but I'm just a guy. And I think that's the imposter syndrome is we're afraid of being found out. And when you do stuff online, it's very public. And so it's even, I think it's even more heightened because like now everybody can see what you're doing and it's, it's just normal and it's real. And everyone who's publishing content struggles with it, but you might as well publish and put yourself out there because someone else is going to do it if you don't. So I, I got to ask you, because this is, your, your first words in your book, your first, let me count. I'm, I was a French major. So seven words uh, in your book are, you are sitting on a gold mine. You are sitting on a gold mine. What the heck do you mean by that? Um, and how, how is that applicable to, to us, to this audience, to, to anybody? So we're in a really interesting time right now. People call it the knowledge economy. There's a term knowledge, commerce, e-learning, online courses, where this is approaching a $300 billion a year industry of people selling their information online. And so, and it's growing. Um, If that's true, and the numbers are pretty clear, everybody has knowledge about something. Everybody is good at something. Everybody has experience doing something. It might be pretty ordinary to you, but there's someone on the internet right now that wants to learn how to do what you know how to do. And so that's the, the idea of the book is that everyone is sitting on a gold mine because you have knowledge inside of you that if you chose to package it up and position it in such a way, you could sell it through a variety of means. And that's the purpose of this book is to help people who are maybe either stuck in a job they don't like, a career path that's not for them or is unfulfilling or a job or career that they like, but it's not very flexible and they want more freedom in their in their day-to-day life. And they're looking for another way. I mean, so many people are quitting their jobs, right? The great resignation. I think people, I, I almost re- re- rebranded as the, the great work-life redesign. Like people are mm. like, just rethinking how really, how does work and life fit together? And I'm rethinking everything. And so this is a moment in time where I'm like, hey, maybe you haven't considered this, but you know something that someone else would pay for. And some people have a hard time believing that, but it's true. And so that's the, the premise of the book is that I show you how to how the model works, why people will pay for it, and then how to bring that out. But it's a fun exercise in that most people think that they're, they're, they're nothing special, um, right. but it's about finding the gem inside of you and then just presenting it in such a way that someone else is like, I need that. You know, you used the word earlier, Graham, you talked about uh, back in 2009, you you refer to your hustle, your side hustle, but you know, I, I know you hate that word. Um, and I actually, I got to say this, uh, the hashtag cultural hustle culture. I know you, you like to talk on this. You have to teach on this, but this is what kills me. It's some of your least popular content. Um, 
your super fans love you railing against the hashtag hustle culture, you know, the workaholism, the gr- rise and grind nonsense. But as far as your broader audience, this stuff does not get a lot of views. What is going on with our, at least in the West, our relationship to hustle, which it doesn't matter if you have an online business or not. I feel like hustle knows no boundaries when it comes to industries. We're all hustling in some way, right? Uh, whether we have a side hustle or not, we're all just working our butts off. I just I just read the John Mark Comer's book, The Re- Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And he was it was so depressing because he talked about in the 60s and 70s when these technology re- re- revolutions were happening, we all predicted more time off. And we don't have that, obviously. So anyway, back to you, man. Like, what, what is your problem with hustle? Why is that such a bad thing in your opinion? I'm not giving up on this message. I think this is the <laughs> message. I, in, all, in all seriousness, I think this is the message that might be the most helpful mm-hmm. that, that I could have. But it's the one that is the pill nobody really wants to swallow. Um, so I'm, I'm te- yeah. I know. I'm trying to tease out different ways to sneak it in. I mean, we just... In America and in the West, we have grown up in a culture that values, it starts with a good thing, like the Puritan work ethic, hard work. America is the land where you can come like literally as a nobody and build something, which is beautiful, right? So we take a good thing, like, man, you don't have to be a Russian oligarch. Like talk about, I love that word being thrown around. It's a sad, sad (laughs) season to talk about it, but like oligarchy, we don't use that word enough. You you don't have to be this super influential person to make it in America. You could be a nobody and make it in America. That's what's a beautiful part of our story here. Mm -hmm. Then we go ahead and just destroy the beautiful thing, which is what humans are really good at doing. And we decide that, you know what, we're going to wrap up our whole identity in our work. And we love wealth so much, which again, wealth isn't a bad thing, but we love it so much that we're willing to sacrifice everything for wealth, mm. for uh, creating a name for ourselves, having power, being known. Mm. Uh, I mean, all the things that we love. Um, and that's what that's what has led to workaholism. Uh, and also some really good marketing tactics where just now we're inundated with more things to buy. We're less content than we were before. And so that's just preying on human nature. You could blame the marketers or you could just blame human nature, but we work overwork to impress people, to impress ourselves, to have things we want. And so what I'm railing against is a couple of things. One is I, I think we're, we were losing our souls in the process. I think being mm. successful at work is great, but at what cost? I mean, Michael Hyatt's latest mm. book, like win at work and succeed at life. I mean, it's a great, it's a book that's needed. He's talking about it. He calls it the double win. Like you want to succeed at work. I get it. You want to do good work, but you also you don't want to lose your family and your health and your relationships or your your spirituality or your community. So how can you have both? So I think we were missing that. But then A, we also have only been taught one way to, to grow and be successful, which is just work more or work harder. And so I'm like, why is that the only path? It's actually, I think hustle is the laziest thing you could do, right? Mm. It is lazy, indiscriminate thinking to just do more stuff or work, do the same task, but faster without ever stopping to do the real work, which is asking yourself, do we even need to do all these things? Are all these things really that useful? Do they drive profit to the bottom line? Do they grow the business? Do they move the organization forward? Does does it really help the mission of the company? Or is it just what we've always done? And so I think what I'm railing against is laziness. I think the hustle is the laziest thing you could do. And what people think, like when I talk about passive income and how few hours I work, they think I'm lazy. And I think I'm actually the opposite. I think I've done the work to stop and think about what's necessary for my business and what's not, and then just only do the things that are necessary. And it's it's amazing. You can actually get more done by doing less, but it does take some soul searching and some intentionality to think through everything we're doing in a day. And what's hard about that is twofold. One, if we're doing it, it's because we think there's a reason to do it. And so to not do it is to say that you were wrong, (laughs) that you don't Mm. need to be doing this. And I think we have a, we just don't want to admit that to ourselves. And then two, we all have drunk the Kool-Aid, which is we will be respected if we work harder than the next guy, come in earlier, stay later. And that's unfortunately kind of true because we have a culture that does worship at the altar of overwork. And we had to get rid of the word workaholism because it sounds a lot like alcoholism, which is a bad thing. And it is a bad thing. So we rebranded it hustle, <laughs> and which isn't even better. If you look up hustle in Merriam-Webster's dictionary, it means like to swindle people or to be a prostitute. Um, and so I, got, I was like, why do we even want to associate our lives with that word? I don't like it. But yeah, it's not popular. But you know what is 
popular is freedom and flexibility. And so people are interested in how do you, how do you like make that kind of money and you still have time to like take your kids to school or mm-hmm. go to the gym or get plenty of sleep or take vacations. Like they're very interested in that. And so that's like my Trojan horse into, well, mm. newsflash, the only way to have more time is to stop doing all the stuff you're doing. Like there's, there's no secret. <laughs> and they're like, well, what, what, what? Like <clears throat> what Mark, I need just a productivity hack. I'm like, no, you just need to, the only way to make more time is to stop doing some of the stuff you're doing. And so th- then we can have a conversation maybe. So I- I'm still working on it and it is sad, but I'm on a crusade, bro. Wait, so how many hours a week do you work, bro? So my business, the, this personal brand is all I'm doing right now. I, I handed off the, the work for the Recording Revolution a year ago to my business partner. I still own it. He runs it. So I don't do any work in that business. So for this one business, my business takes six hours a week to run. <laughs> max. If I'm doing any more than that, it's, it's because I'm like, right now I'm doing a lot of interviews like this for the book. Last year, I spent a lot of time writing the book mm-hmm. um, or if I'm going to build out a new product, which I, I rarely do, but just to keep the business running and growing six hours a week. Six hours a week. Wow. <clears throat> How do you break that up? Do you do, do you do one day of work and then take the rest, not off, but what, what does it look like for you? Like last summer, I just worked one day a week. Um, because the kids were home for school during the summer. So I wanted more time with them. Right now I'm working two half days. I work, I work Monday for about four hours and two on Wednesday, I come in for a couple hours uh, and then that's it. How do you fight that temptation to, to fill that? Cause I, I just, I think that's so deeply ingrained in so many of us. I mean, even I agree with everything you just said about the hustle culture. And I remember when Greg McEwen wrote his new book, effortless, just that idea of effortless, it sounded lazy uh, we've, we've just ingrained the idea of it. If it's, if it's not hard, it's not valuable. Um, so how do you fight that temptation? Just want to do more just to feel like you're doing something of value to, to make it feel like you're doing something that matters. Dude, it's a never ending fight. So you do fight that even though that's something that you, okay. Yeah. Yes. I'll slip. I'll slip. I drift. Um, because, because then fear, like creeps back up even in my mm-hmm. head. I'm like the anti-work all the time guy. <laughs> and then every once in a while I'll wake up, I'm like, but maybe I'm missing it. Maybe I should work more. Maybe that is the secret. And you start to just wonder again, you start to get fearful, fear of missing out becomes a real thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I drift. So I, I, what I've tried to do is put some guardrails in place. So I try to every six months have an 80-20 optimization day. Where I real, I have a running Google Doc that's my 80-20 optimization. It's like basically every task my business requires to run in that moment. And then I, I look at that list every six months, ideally, and I challenge every single task. And I just mm-hmm. like I force myself to prove to myself. It's like CEO hat comes on and I tell employee hat, prove to me that that's a good use of our company's mm-hmm. money and time for you to do that task. Yeah. And I, if I can't, then I need to eliminate it. Or if it can't be eliminated, then like Tim Ferriss has this great, you know process in the four hour work week, eliminate first task and then automate what you can't eliminate. Mm -hmm. And then whatever you can't get rid of or automate to a computer program, then you delegate to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Um, But never automate or delegate something that doesn't need to be done in the first place. Like it Mm -hmm. always starts with elimination. So every six months I try to look at it. And and that's when I I come back to my senses if I've drifted of like, no, I don't like posting reels on Instagram or being on TikTok. Although there is a chance that a video could go viral and draw a ton of leads. That is a possibility. It is not the reality for most of Mm -hmm. us. And there's no hard data that says that's going to lead to income in my pocket. I have a lot of hard data that says if I post another video on YouTube, my leads grow. And then my system collects those leads and offers them products. If I email my list, I make money when I offer them Mm -hmm. stuff. So I have I just choose to do the tasks that have a much clearer line to to revenue, assuming the tasks I want to do. I, there's a lot of things I could do for revenue that I just don't feel like doing. So mm-hmm. money isn't the only driver. But yeah, to your point, 100%. I struggle. I drift. I'm human, um, especially when you're the only one around you doing what you're doing. Everyone <laughs> else is hustling, so you start to think, "Am I am I the crazy person here?" Because you feel like a crazy person. It's hard to be different. Mm-hmm. And when you if you don't have people around you that are drinking the same Kool Aid that you're drinking. Uh, it gets really, really easy to slip back into whatever the cultural narrative is. So yeah, I feel it. That's one of the things I appreciate about your content is you you don't 
teach hacks. You really teach, mm-hmm. you know, get rich, build a business slowly over time. I love your concept of generosity of giving so much of that free content over time. And you also fight against this hustle culture in your little tagline of your podcast, you talk about, so you can live and give more. What would you say you're optimizing for? Yeah. Great question. So a few things right now in this season, I still have kids at home, right? So I have a almost 13 year old and I have a 10 year old. So I've got a five to eight year window left with kids under the, the roof. So I'm optimizing for time with them right now. Mm. That's important. Time with my wife. We both take Fridays off. It's like our date day. So we'll run errands together. We'll go do lunch together. We'll do marriage counseling on those days. Like that, those are our days together. So I'm optimizing for time with her. Um, health. Like there was years where I just wasn't consistent with any kind of workout routine. And I finally like got into something that I like. And so it's like, I want to make sure I, I have di- time to work out. Um, and then ribbon dancing, right? It's I ribbon dancing. Gonna, I wasn't going to say that publicly. <laughs> the, I didn't mean to out you. You can burn a lot of calories. <laughs> good workout. Dancing, yeah. That's what I hear. Uh, sorry, just imagine I totally what I look like. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's kind of a hideous. That might go viral. <laughs> that could go viral. Yeah. Maybe that's Ram- what I'm missing. <laughs> Hashtag ribbon dancing. Sorry yeah, to all the I'll- ribbon dancers on our audience that just, you know, I know. I feel like we're offending. There's one person that's like, who are these? They're going to shut it down. They're going to blow this up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. So, yeah, ribbon dancing has been good. I optimized for that. I mean, and the, yeah, so for us, travel is important. Like a couple of years ago, we, one of the, my big bucket list things was could I take a month off? and go live in another country for a month and have my business still run. So that was like a, a challenge for myself. And so we we just booked Airbnbs in the South of France and like booked plane tickets and wow. said, we're going to do it. And so we as a family were there for a month and I stayed for another two weeks. I did like a cycling tour uh, tied around the Tour de France, which is like a, a big bucket list thing for me too. So I spent six weeks in Europe um, and I only, my plan was to work two hours a week, like to open the laptop and just check in. But the internet was so bad out in the middle of nowhere that I just had to give up and like, it still worked. Money still kept coming in. And that was, so that was a big challenge that it was accepted. So travel is important, um, but like it changes. So this next season I'm going into of trying to become an author. I mean, I am an author, but like trying to mm-hmm. be, be <laughs> like that, be more of a a big pillar of what I do and be more intentional to write and then speak. I want to do more public speaking. I really have enjoyed that, but I haven't had the margin to do that. So to get serious, to write and speak and to, I hate to use that language, be a thought leader. Like I want to create resources and content that change people's thoughts. Mm -hmm. So that's what I view like a thought leader is to do that. I have to be even more of a learner than I am. I feel like I'm an avid reader. I feel like I take a lot of courses, but what I'm optimizing for now, like literally Cal, like I've redone my, my vision for the way I want the year to wrap up. So into 2023, I'll, I want to be working only on Mondays. I want to get it down to four hours a week. And then Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, I'm all I'm going to be doing is reading books and writing my next book and crafting talks or speeches. Mm. I want to read, write, and prepare speeches. And so I just want the time to do that kind of work, which maybe doesn't pay the bills right now as much and maybe seems like introspective, but could be career changing or just personally fulfilling. Dude, I, I love um, that's like a beautiful segue to a question that I have for you is uh, you, you're a dude who's got two separate businesses that are both seven figure plus businesses. And you just mentioned that you want more time to grow, right? And one of those things that you've done recently, I know, is you've hired at great cost to yourself uh, a preeminent high-performance coach. Um, but a lot of people would look at you and feel like that's crazy. You're already successful. Like, what, what are you doing? Um, why would you spend that kind of money? Uh, and, and what on earth could a high-performance coach tell somebody that owns two seven-figure businesses? A lot. Um... <sighs> So there's like the personal itch, like I love learning. And then there's the the human desire to like fulfill our God-given potential. Um, I've, I've exhausted almost every resource I can to get where I am now. And what I feel like I need in this season in, to be specific is I want to learn the power of asking better questions. Mm. As someone who coaches people, I feel like I'm good in some contexts, but I've, I've seen my limitations and I've been a part of 
moments where someone's asked one simple question instead of giving an answer. And that question all of a sudden creates so much self-discovery in the person who's being asked. And to me, that's a superpower that I want to learn. So in particular, I've hired a guy who I think is a master at asking questions, who just listens. I want to be a better listener and a better question asker. So I'm, I'm paying a lot of money to learn from someone who's really good at that. I don't know exactly what I'll use it for hundred percent, but I, I want to grow in that area. And I, I think like the best athletes in the world spend a lot of money on coaching, right? Mm. They're already the best in the world. Why do they have coaches? Because they know that coaches bring the best out of them. That's why they're the best in the world. So it would be foolish to think when you get to a level, you don't need a coach anymore. It's like the opposite. The LeBron Jameses of the world, the Olympic athletes of the world all have coaches. Some are physical and a lot of them are mindset because then they even know that it's not even about their physicality or the way they throw the ball. It's their mindset. And so they know something that I think a lot of people don't know. And you don't have to pay a lot of money for a coach. Just read books because it's this, in a lot of ways, it's the same. Like you can be mentored by a book or by a person or both, but it, that's important to me because I've I've gotten to places where I'm like, dude, I'm plateauing. Like th I, this is all I know. I need to be stretched. I need to be challenged. This has been a hard year for me, an exciting year, but I'm doing things that make me feel uncomfortable and I hate it, hmm. but I like it. Like writing a book was uncomfortable. It's it would have been a lot easier to just keep doing what I do, and the, and podcasts are easy, YouTube is easy, courses are easy for me. Writing a book and then having to work with a publisher and then having to get press, like it just feels like so different. But it's been good for me, and I want to be stretched, and I don't want to stay stagnant. It doesn't mean I want to work a lot of hours. There's a difference, but I want to grow and be stretched. And I think they go together. If you if you can get your work under control, whether you work for somebody else or not, this really does apply if you work for somebody else too, because you want to transition your value from being how many hours and you, you haven't with your butt in a seat to how much value you actually bring to the organization. And that takes really understanding what your superiors and your managers need and what the, the mission of the organization is. And you can be creative. And if you can show value, it has nothing to do with your hours. And eventually you can change the tide of like, hey, it's not me coming in earlier that's going to make this a better mm. place. It's certain things I do. Once you figure that out, you might get the privilege of more hours or more flexibility with your time. And then you have more time to invest in yourself with coaching or books or webinars or courses or whatever. And then you become unstoppable stoppable because you're learning, you have more value to add, and the, the cycle continues. I love it. Graham, I want to ask you this one last question, and then I want you to tell us a little bit about the book or just where people can find uh, it and you. But you, you seem to lead yourself well, uh, even just hearing you talk through some of the, I can just hear little, you know, you're, you have clarity about this next phase. You have clarity about some things you want to try. It seems like you have some specific habits where you go through your business task and you eliminate what is one habit or routine or ritual that you think has just really made the biggest positive difference for you? One thing that I feel like helps me is I try to, I, I hate journaling. So I, I, maybe this is a contradictory statement. I would say I'm not a journaler. Mm -hmm. And yet I would say the most powerful thing that I do that's habitual that it I don't think of it as journaling because it's not on paper, but I have a running list on my Google, on my Apple Notes app on my phone and running random Google Docs that are probably still untitled somewhere um, uh, where I map out a vision for what I want things to look like. I just I write it out. One set of questions is like, if you create a simple three-year vision and the way you do it is like through role play. So for example, Cal, if, if we bumped, if we we're going to do this vision for you, if we bumped into each other three years from now at a conference or something, it's the year 2025. So it's three years from now. And I'm like, Cal, dude, how the heck are you? It's been like three years since we talked on that podcast. And you're like, oh my gosh, Graham, these have been the best three years of my life. I say, oh, that's amazing. Well, <laughs> why? And then what would you tell me about? It's like, uh, that's a yeah, prompt for you yeah. to like, I mean, you, you, you could tell me now, like that's, that's what I would create a document and, and like write that out. What, like, mm. why would they have been the best three years of your life? What, what, what's going on? And whatever comes to mind is, is your vision. It doesn't, you don't even have to compartmentalize it. It could be career. It comes to mind. It could be family. It could be a lot of things. It could be weight loss goals. It could be mm -hmm. whatever, but you map out like, well, these would be the things that would be true if they were the best three years of my life. Mm. That's a starting point because then you start to unpack what your true desires are. And most of us have never done that. We do what we think we want or what somebody told us we should want or what we think we should want. And we, mm. we should all over ourselves, as people say. Like, <laughs> like, And that, that's how you end up drifting through life and you become a 60-year-old man or woman. And you're like, what mm. did I do with my life? Because you mm. never stop to think a simple question, which is, you know... <laughs> 
New Year's resolutions are kind of pointless, right? Because I think Tony Robbins says everyone over overestimates what they can do in a year, but they yeah. underestimate what they can do in a decade. Right. And I think like 10 years might seem like a long time. So the three years is like, what would it look like in the next three years if it's the best three years of your life? And then mm. four simple follow-up questions. What are the dangers that are going to get in the way of that vision? External mm. dangers, internal dangers, like the way you think, your personality, you know your tendencies. What are the dangers? List them out. Be honest. What are the biggest opportunities in front of you that could lead to that vision? Like you probably have some opportunities right in front of you. What are your biggest two to three unique strengths? That's cool to know. And then what are the dark sides of those strengths? Hmm. One of the strengths you pointed out earlier, Wes, is that I have a strength of discipline. Yeah. I was just coaching my mastermind students today. I was telling guys, one of my biggest strengths is discipline. You know what the dark side of discipline is? Hmm. I'm pretty rigid. I'm not very curious. I don't experiment. I don't break things apart and wonder if they could be better. I just, I just don't change things. Hmm. And so there's a, there's a dark side. There's a pro and there's a con. And so if you just walk through those five questions, the three-year vision and then the four follow-up questions, if you just one piece of paper, mm-hmm. maybe 30 to 60 minutes, that you could look at that, all of a sudden, hmm. you could have so much clarity That's great. To know like, man, my job does not line up with this. The way I'm treating my wife does not line up with this. Mm. What I'm doing on the weekends is not going to get me there. (laughs) Like that's so helpful. And then you'll figure out what to do next because everyone's path is different. You can't really prescribe that. But I think that self-awareness, that little exercise, that's for me, I do stuff like that. That's been the most helpful thing for me. And I drift away from it. And then I try to come back to it at least once Mm. a year Mm. and do that kind of exercise. That's so good. Do you have multiple? So on the iPhone, do you have multiple notes? open or you just have one that you just keep adding to as like a journal? Multiple notes. And I'll title them. Like if it's just like a a financial vision, like, or a work vision, but in Google, like I will do, I'll sometimes just write up those four questions in a Google doc and I'll call it the three-year vision. Um, Or I'll, I'll just like, again, I'll I'll just, I get my thoughts out. Yeah. uh, And when I see them, I mean, you know how that is. Like when you see it written in front of you, you you instantly know if it's honest or not, but you almost have to mm. get it out first to be like, yeah. no, that's what I think I should write, but that's not mm. it. Or you get it out, you're like, oh my gosh, that's really mm-hmm. it. Yeah, That's it. And it's just revealing. And I think people are too busy hustling, too busy, mm-hmm. or they're too tired. Like, here's the negative thing about hustle. Like, I don't want to pick on people because like the reality is if you overwork or work too hard, you're exhausted at night. Mm. You're exhausted on the weekends. And so when you're exhausted, you don't have the the brain power, the mental prowess for that yeah. in that moment, yeah. it, mental cognition, like uh, people say we're cognitive misers. Like we have a limited finite amount of cognition to use. And if you've used it all, just mm. busting out work, you got nothing left for yourself to like do self-discovery. And a lot of the stuff the, the philosophers used to do that allowed them to live rich yeah. lives because they, they take the time to think. And yeah. we don't have a culture that values thought. We have a culture that values production at the sake for production. And so I think it's hard. It's hard when you're exhausted. If you have a family or a spouse, it's even doubly hard. So mm-hmm. what I, last thing I would say about it is, man, if that's you, like talk to your spouse, talk to your family, talk to your employer and, and find four hours, like a half day or a day that you can take off once, like take a mental health day or something like, I just need one day what can we do to set it up even if I have to plan it out months in advance mm-hmm. so I can have a day where I can go somewhere else visually stimulating, somewhere beautiful, somewhere that's inspiring. It could be a nice coffee shop in your mm-hmm. town. It could be, I like the beach or mm-hmm. I like to be by water. Something about water calms me down. Mm-hmm. Be somewhere different and then just have time to think about your vision. One day away, even if you don't go overnight, even just one work day away could change the course of your life, but you do need to carve out the space and be honest with yourself that you're going to be exhausted every night. So you might not be able to do it when you come home. You might not be able to do it on the weekend, but it's worth doing. And that's those are the moments that you can completely alter the course of your life that three years from now, mm-hmm. everything looks different. It may not look much different in three days, but three years from now, you'll look back and be like, that was the day that I got honest about what I really <laughs> want in life and wow. changed. That's so valuable. And I, and I love to going back to the notes, the idea of capturing those thoughts while they're fresh. I was cutting the grass the other day and I just had all these great thoughts that came to me. But yep. uh, in fact, I ended up doing like a little uh, voice memo because I didn't want to forget them, but I, I'll have the best thoughts, but then I'll forget them uh, soon after. Um, well, Grant, this has been so much fun. Sorry to keep you over. Uh, in the last just like 30 seconds, tell people where to, to follow you, connect with you, uh, get the book. Really appreciate you coming on today and I'm just so thankful for the great work you're doing. 
Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, the book is called How to Get Paid for What You Know. Um, it drops March 22nd. So depending on when you hear it, it might already be out. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. But if you go to grahamcocker.com slash book, um, there's a bunch of pre-order bonuses that might still be up to even after the book drops. Um, about $100 worth of bonuses, an audio course, some downloadables. Right now, if you pre-order the first two chapters of the book for free, just some goodies um, that I'm doing. And I'm giving away a free 90-minute coaching session to one lucky uh, pre-orderer. So I'll just take your receipt there. You can enter in the information there wherever you buy. It doesn't matter where you buy it. So that's the biggest thing. And I would just All say, right. hey, if you like the book, leave a review. Let me know what you think about it. Let me know how it's helped you. Absolutely. All right, Graham. Thanks so much. Great to see hey, you. Thanks for bro. having me, guys. <laughs> bro, it's a pleasure. Good to see you. I'll sir. talk to you tomorrow, I'm sure. Love you, man. <laughs> Hey friends, I hope you got a lot out of this conversation with Graham. Graham is someone that I've been following for the last several years. And as you can tell on this interview, I'm sure you, you probably already fell in love with him. He's just super real, super relatable. I love his perspective of optimizing for the most important things in life. You can also tell very clearly from this conversation that he leads himself well, something that we're always trying to do here at Intentional Leader, trying to study is what does it take to lead yourself well? And I love some of those habits that he shared at the end of the interview. Hey, go register for an opportunity to get a free copy of his book. Just again, it's in the show notes of this episode. Just click on that link that says register to get a copy of Graham's book. And uh, we'd love to give that to you and we'll let you know if you win really hope that you can go and incorporate some of these wonderful little wisdom nuggets that Graham share with us today. I hope you go and make it a great week, impact the people around you. Remember, life is short. Let's go make it count.